0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Couldn't roll it back, and that's beautiful. And I would say, you know, take a look at your sobriety date, but let God guide you. Like all my sponsees, I say to them, hey, I've told you very explicitly what to do now. For God's sake, don't do it. You let God guide you. No, I understand, I understand, John. We're, talk, we're talking about thoughts now. This yeah. Isn't anything he's done. Well, no, but, okay, but that's the whole point of what I'm saying is that the thoughts are of more consequence than we originally thought. And it's, how uh, how, how much sobriety have you got? Okay. Okay. Uh, You will, as you go along, John, and I don't mean, I'm not mean this in As you go along, I think you will come to share more of this understanding. But what business are you in? You're a social worker. Okay. When you were a new social worker, uh, how competent were you? Yeah, you weren't that great. Okay. When I was a new advertising man, I wasn't very good either. (laughs) But as I stayed at the thing, I learned more. OK, so it isn't an insult to me that I wasn't very good at first. That's just the nature of the of the beast. OK, did you have a question? There? OK, right there.
2: Uh, I'm Charlie. I'm a recovering sex addict. Okay. Uh, About sponsorship. I have yeah. a question. You don't want to, you said you don't want to show recovery down someone's throat. Right. What do you do when you have a sponsee and... He just wants
1: to stay at one place. He doesn't want to grow. Okay, the answer is, a what do I do with a sponsee who just wants to stay in one place and doesn't want to grow? And the answer is, I want to get upset and I want to scream and yell at him. And sometimes I do, but I shouldn't. (laughs) I should epitomize patience and loving kindness. But sometimes I'm not very good at demonstrating. I mean, well, you've seen a perfect example here. You have seen in me exactly what 11 and a half years will produce and exactly what it won't produce. So I offer my strengths as a gift from God. I offer my weaknesses as what I was unwilling to do with what God gave me. Okay? This is just the best I can do right now with what God has offered me and what I could get the acceptance to take. No more, no less. So... Uh, We can't demonstrate past our understanding, because our demonstration is our understanding. And sometimes we can understand things we can't really demonstrate very well. So, um, if you guys will do this for me, if you'll come back five years from now, I think I'll be better. The indications are that I will, if I'm, you know, to draw a line on what I've seen so far of myself. And hell, I might be just the most loving, kind, <laughs> soft, easy person you ever saw. But thank God this program does work, doesn't it? <laughs> Look what it did to that maniac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd be a rubber mallet instead of a hammer. <laughs> and Mark and Jerry would just appreciate that so much (laughs) and they're such nice people and they're doing so well and they deserve I think sometimes much more than I can possibly give them but the way it goes I'm a very limited finite human being but God isn't finished with me yet he is removing those defects of character of mine which stand in the way of my usefulness to others which stand in the way of my usefulness to you so those defects of my character, which have been difficult for you to handle here, you know, uh, those are the ones God will be gradually taking away. Now, he won't take away all my defects of character, or at least he doesn't say that any place. Oh, and he will also take away the defects of my character, it says also, I think it's in the third step, where he will take away uh, those defects of character which allow me to uh, uh, be an example of your Love and your way of life. May I do Your will always. Some you got
2: to.
1: Okay, so He'll take away those things that um, that aren't that don't inspire you. So those parts of me that didn't inspire you, God will take them away. Simple, hell with you. deal. Yeah, Kit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hi,
2: I'm John. Yeah, John. I I, I want to go back to this uh letting lust in and changing sobriety yeah um you know in, in, in a.a it's easy i mean you take a drink you know you got a new sobriety uh if you go into a bar and you take a drink, you take a drink you put your hands around a bottle of beer you don't change your sobriety date at least I mean, I've never done that,
1: but it, if I did do something like that, I, I wouldn't change my mind. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't. close. Yeah, I I The way your question is developed, I won't give five cents so far for your logic, but go ahead, keep on going and <laughs> see.
2: What's the definition of sobriety? In this okay, study? it's a very sure simple. That that's the question. In other words, my understanding was that there's an essay definition of sobriety, right? And it involves having sex. Yeah, have sex day. with yourself
1: or others. Yeah, and I think that's a great definition of sobriety. What I have done is I've gone along in the program is I've asked a higher level of that definition than is there. Now, just because I've asked that of myself, like if I premeditatedly, boy, I am going to have a lust attack. I'm going to take some of them videos that I got and I am going to play the hell out of them and I'm going to really get into it. Where I am today, that's a slip. Okay, let me give you a horrible example on your AA situation. I happen to have the old AA Old Timers tapes. And Ebby, who carried the message to Bill, was always a little out of joint that Bill didn't date the start of AA from when Ebby came to him. And he also, Ebby was, nose was out of joint, I just found out recently in another old timer AA tape, that Ebby didn't get credit for founding AA instead of Bill. Okay, but I know why uh, Bill didn't call AA starting until he and Dr. Bob met, because I've got an old AA tape of where Ebby is. He, he had a slip after he introduced Bill to the program. And then he got back in. He was down in Texas and recovered, and was uh, Bill was invited down to speak, and so Ebby introduced Bill. And on his introduction to that tape of Bill, Ebby is saying, I can still remember my days as, a, as an alcoholic and looking in that refrigerator and seeing those bottles of Carling's ale with that sweat on the bottles and those pretty labels. And I listened to that and I thought, "What in the world are you talking about me?" Okay, that's lust for alcohol. Okay, where, what is the line between lust for alcohol and taking that first drink and that and taking the drink and then? Where is it you're going to draw the line for a slip? Okay, at the first stages with a guy in AA, fine, he draws the line of taking a drink. But if if I'm in AA and I'm doing a lot of thinking like Ebby does, i got to say, hey, i got a serious problem. Because I am not sober in my thinking. People think in AA it's simple because it's this hard, clean thing of you're drinking or you ain't drinking. And the hell it is. There's all kinds of shades of gray in that sucker too, from what I've seen of it. Now we got a old-time hardcore, all-out AA right here, so uh, you know uh, Glenn could give us a definitive answer to any of our questions on that subject. But that's that's just my my feeling. You see that that line is gray, and then what? As I've done is I've come along in my sobriety, and I, I'm hanging by that rope, buddy, over 4,000 feet of rock. I don't want to do nothing that interferes with any of those 12 strands of rope. So I would just as soon have too tight a definition of my sobriety than one that's too loose. Now, I'm not urging that on you. I'm not saying you should do that. The program is very clear what sobriety is. Follow that definition. You'll never go wrong. But if further down the road in sobriety you decide you want to tighten up your definition, pretty cool. You see?
2: My sobriety date is ten minutes ago. Okay. And, and that's why I think that's why you got some reaction here, people, because I think I might not be the only one in this room who would have to say, <laughs> hey, you know, I, I lusted this morning. Yeah. Uh, or this afternoon, or whatever. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, no, and and this program so is yeah. this program is about progressive victory over lust, so I wouldn't tell you to roll your sobriety back. I wouldn't tell anybody in the room that. But one thing, what your question suggested, I did get a bunch of people's attention. <laughs> I'm a teacher. How does a teacher teach? They teach somewhat, they tend to exaggerate things to some degree to make a point. Now, I, I shouldn't do that to try to scare anybody or, or to, to showboat. But you know what a good teacher was for you, somebody who could really dramatize something. The third step prayer says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties. This is the sentence. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Of your power, your love, and your way of life, may I do your will always. So, yes, God has taken away a number of my difficulties because I've got some funny news for you people. Those of you who have been irritated by me, uh, it's still it's a hell of a lot better than it used to be. Now that doesn't mean much to you, but, <laughs> but that's that's the truth. Because I've handled a lot of people things here today better than I've you know handled them three years ago, and that's good enough for me. And if I have given offense to any of you, I'm you know I really apologize, and I, you know I hope I do. You know, well, I don't want to give offense. <laughs>
2: My name is George, recovering sex addict. was something that came to my mind um, a few minutes ago by something that that you said was that um, I heard on your tape from Portland again, and I've heard this in AA too over the years and it's helpful (coughs) to me, is that this takes time. I think you said something about a five year period on a tape, I wasn't sure exactly. And, I, and it was just something I needed to hear at the, at the time because I was confused yeah. about where I am at the pro, in the program and yeah. you know um, how you know what step I'm on and all that. But that's always been a saving grace for me is to realize that, and I'm sure for all of us, that this does take as hard as it is. It does take time um, to have the progressive. Victory. Yeah,
1: yeah. This is something I'd written just the other day. It said we're off like a herd of turtles. And that's what we're doing. You know, it's gradual. Is that it, Glenn? Okay. Uh, Yes, final question.
2: I was just going to say, I was sober by essay's definition for a few years. And I look back on it now and see that I had slips that were major lust drinks over time. You know, where I would just sit there and entertain, premeditate lust. I've been slipping on along, and then I ended up going back out there. And uh, so that the idea of being lost free is, is right. And I also on the side of getting hits off things would see that I would be in my car and I would turn on music. And I didn't lust sexually by the music, but just listening to the music was giving me an adrenaline rush and a hit. And whenever I think about the reasons I slipped, those two are right there.
1: OK, uh, Jim made the point that. That he was skirting the edges in a couple of years of sobriety of entertaining lust and getting lust hits. And he was even getting lust hits off uh, just banging out his music. And I have found because of my susceptibility as a sexaholic to images and music and all that kind of stuff, I have to be exceptionally sparing in my intake of it. I don't watch television at all, except for Boston Celtics games, (laughs) and when the commercials come on, I immediately mute the sound and look away because there's Miller Beer commercials on there and they are sexaholics heaven. I don't want one more image in my head. Now, once in a while, I'll watch a movie like Big uh, or uh, the opera. Madam Butterfly with my family because I need to do that. But I know that in some of those things I will be taking in some images that I would just as soon not take in. But I have to do it because there's a broader issue which is my family's total welfare than my relationship with my wife and, and kids. But now I will not be careless and watch things uh, just to, to sit there with her and watch things. And there's a part of her really wants me to do that. So that's it. We'll talk some more on the last thing, and I really appreciate your help. Thank you. (laughs) Ha ha. You know, talk about an apropos conversation. Remember that sobriety date thing? Guess who just rolled their sobriety date back to zero? Yours truly. You ate in between meals. I ate in between meals. Yeah, Dan noticed it, and, and he's sensitive to it because he's had some acquaintance, personal acquaintance with the issue. And he said, Jess, you're eating a cookie. I said, Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't even notice it. I had to win one at each of the breaks. So I was a lack of mindfulness there. And <laughs> he apologized afterwards. He said, Yes, he said, I didn't mean to be leaning on you. I said, No, no, on the other hand, the contrary. I need to develop mindfulness. And I said, it makes a heck of a story. So, <laughs> But so you see, the issue isn't. It brings up. It dramatizes the issue so clearly. You know, my issue is me being uh, having food sobriety. You know, and the fact that it started in November or October 11th is not the issue. The issue is that for the remainder of today, I'll have, you know, do the best I can to have, you know, the rest of the day's food sobriety. And uh, I could excuse, I could come with a million excuses under the heat of the battle, you know. <laughs> Skip me. <laughs> this is like somebody said uh, he was told in AA that a a uh, that this is a I forget how he fresh his program about abstinence, but it's also a spiritual program well that's what I'm talking about here is a spiritual program and uh, <laughs> You know, is the danger with that other argument of what can we get away with sexually and not have to roll our sobriety date backward gets to be in the old thing of how many gnats can walk on the head of a pin, you know. Skip me on that sucker. (laughs) I know where that leads. It leads to madness and, and terrible, terrible stuff. I've been that. I know what's down that trail. Skip me. So now, let me tell you, we call that last tape Stopping All the Other Poisons, and this one is the Essay Bus to Sainthood. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me tell you two of the miraculous, overwhelming miraculous things that happened to me. But the first of all is where the title comes from, the Essay Bus to Sainthood. I was an idiot sex pervert doing these terrible thinking things, a terrible betrayal of everything I professed to believe. And they told me to stop lusting. And I was prepared to do that and accept that gift from God, God's grace. And the willingness was God's grace. And so, I started to stop lusting, and and where it led me to was not, I'm not allowed now to want anything for me in any area of my life. And I'm told to put down all my old ideas. And I'm told, as I told you in that Nashville and uh, the California Unity tapes, That lust is wanting anything else than what life is putting before me right now. And guess what's in front of me right now? It's you. Home is not in front of me right now. The loss of my beloved Boston Celtics is not in front of me right now. (laughs) (laughs) You rat. (laughs) Damn Nick fan in the back there. But... You are in front of me right now, and you are what I love. I'm writing a new book. I had written one called I Ain't Much Baby, But I'm All I Got, and I'm writing a new one called I Still Ain't Much Baby, And I'm Still All I Got. And I'm having 13 people read the chapters of that book at a time. I mean, been 13 people, different people around the country, reading the first chapter. Each get a copy, and they send me their feedback in envelopes I've included with those first chapters. Six of those 13 people are here, in this room. That's why I'm here. Because now I can go where the love is, and it's every place, but I can see it better in some places than I can in others. Chuck, in one of his late tapes, says, I love you all because I know who you are. Now, I can say that and I can understand what he means, but I can't demonstrate it. So I'm not going to say it. Even though it's true. But uh, I'm moving in that direction as well as I can. Because I do know who you are. And so that's why... I'm here, you know, it also gave me this precious opportunity then to pass on what I have been given by the other people in the fellowship. And uh, each of us in this fellowship play a special part. We were gifted in this fellowship in a way that few others were of the different 12-step fellowships with a man who had this overwhelming prophetic vision, which is Roy. And then he coupled that with this overwhelming gift to communicate that prophetic vision in words. And then he added to that this overwhelming gift of keeping us focused on lust and its terrible dangers. And never letting us forget that. You know, uh, Roy's a limited human being just as I am and he has certain areas where he can't. Work in yours quite as effectively, and uh, but that's what a fellowship is about: is each of us doing what we can, to the best of our ability, and each of you will be called to leadership because you are like the cadre in the army in before World War II, when there was uh, the army was perhaps uh, two hundred thousand men. There were guys who had been corporals or rather colonels in World War I who were down to master sergeants in that army. But that cadre of two or three hundred thousand men in 1938 was capable of being expanded to an army of 10 to 15 million men. But you see, we think we want a lot of people to come to SA, but fortunately a lot of people haven't come to SA yet. And what we are here to do is to deepen and enrich our sobriety so that when they come, we will have something to offer them instead of an empty pot. Just like I was saying to Dennis, instead of an empty canteen as we face out across the Sahara Desert. And so that each of you, as you look at your spiritual programs, are having a chance to strengthen them and deepen them and make them grow. And so what happened to me, I got on this bus and I started getting rid of everything I didn't have and not wanting anything I didn't have that wasn't right in front of me. And then I go outside, the bus stops a bit, and I go outside and look in the bus, and what's the bus say on the destination? It says, Sainthood. And I think, how come I'm on this bus? And how come a weird sex pervert, the lowest of the low, is on the highest bus? And there's an old uh, story about a man who walked into a banquet table, For a banquet and sat down at the foot of the table and was asked to go to a higher place. And that's what's happened to me as a sexaholic, and I suspect will happen to all of you as sexaholics. I know it will it will happen to all of you if you persist. You will find yourself on the same bus. And the good appearing part of you that and me that delighted to make a good appearance to others will say. How come that idiot is on that bus? How come I'm not on it? i never done any of them bad things that they did. And, and it's a mystery as to why we're on this bus. But that's the bus we're on. Because in dealing with the lowest of the low, which is us dealing with each other, As human beings and seeing them with love, we're doing the highest thing there is. There ain't nothing more than what we're doing and what we've done here together in these hours today. When we listen to a person's first step and honor them, and they feel as they do feel no judgment at all from us and total love and acceptance from us, We're doing the highest thing there is. There isn't anything higher than that. So that any spiritual program I understand, no matter what name it carries, they all point in the same direction. So that's why I feel that we're on this bus to sainthood. Now I'll tell you about another unbelievable thing that's happened to me. I'm a creature of extremes, as you can so easily see. And my wife says, Hey, you've taken this damn program of yours and used it to shut off all things good and real. You've turned yourself into a non thinking, non feeling, or non feeling idiot, where you won't take the excitement of, uh, watching some weird thing on television or something like that. And she's, you know, she's joking, but she's concerned for me because I tend to take things to extremes. And she said in your Norwegian fear of feeling, you've taken and shut off a whole bunch of feeling. Like I've said, I don't want any envy, anger, jealousy, resentment, bitterness, hatred. Fear, loneliness, any of those things. Loneliness isn't something I fight because that was taken away from me some time ago, many years ago. And I thought, yeah, maybe you're right. Because like when my wife has very carefully explained in vivid technicolor detail one of my great defects of character, and it's so easy, it's like shooting fish in a barrel to find those but she explains those things in great, vivid detail, and I have trouble being grateful. I have trouble being grateful. I tend to get mad, upset, irritated. I bought my workshop, which is my main, for max, you know, if you do something to me that gives me the max disturbance, my first defense is to go to my workshop and do something with my hands and find some project that I'm stored up there that is really interesting to work on. That's my occupational therapy, just like in a mental ward at the hospital. they got their basket weaving and leather work. But so mine is to go into my workshop. Sometimes it has taken me as much as three hours to get that stuff out of my head. There's a story in one of the spiritual traditions about two... Monks in that tradition who were walking down a muddy street and they saw this lady in this beautiful kimono on one side. And so one monk obviously wanted to get across the muddy street. So one monk went over and picked her up and carried her across, set her down the other side and they walked on. And about an hour later, the second monk said, say, say about that beautiful woman you carried across the street. We monks aren't supposed to go near beautiful women, say nothing to carry one across the street. And the first monk said, are you still carrying her? He said, I put her down in the marketplace an hour ago. You have applied that thinking. So not only do I not entertain lust in any of its various forms as much as I can see it. I also put all feelings down the minute they're over with. As much as I can humanly do it. So. It takes me three hours to get this feeling down, but I get it down eventually and I never justify my rightness in not putting it down. I can say she's wrong, I know she's wrong, and in these particular particulars she was totally wrong and I can prove it to a judge. I don't justify that kind of thinking, I gotta put it down. Right, wrong, good, bad, I gotta put it down and I get it down as fast as I can. And I've been doing that for a lot for the last uh, five years, and especially a lot in the last couple years. Uh, this bracelet is from the followers of uh, a guy who practiced that spiritual program and lived it um, in. Um, Well, he practiced it in very advanced ages in his life, from 90 to 105. Well, he did a very difficult thing in very advanced stages of his life. And what this bracelet is, is a reminder to me to put it down. Whatever difficulty I might have with anybody at any time, right or wrong, good or bad, I must put it down. And this is where I have made this, this in the last couple of days, one of the most amazing discoveries that just breathtaking to me. I didn't see the first one, which happened a couple of days ago until the day before yesterday, I saw the second one. Uh, my my son uh, got married rather late. In late, he was 35 or so, and he got married and married a gal who uh, they thought couldn't have a baby, and so they adopted a baby. And that baby they adopted happened to be my great-grandson, who was in an unsafe home and uh, ended up in his home in a safe home. Well, lo and behold, the presence of my now grandson in his home uh, did some magical thing to the wife, and she all of a sudden got pregnant. This lady who couldn't get pregnant got pregnant, and so our great-granddaughter, or rather, my grandson, granddaughter was born day before yesterday at 10.30 in the morning. So I just, when I found that out, I just hit me, my God. There is a new life on earth. And it was so overwhelming to me. God, there's a new life here. And it's in our family. And it's a part of us. And it's our life. This new life. And it was just stunning to me. And it was uh, about three o'clock. I went and picked up Robert after school. And... and uh, I asked Jackie, when, you know, to go see her, and and uh, we worked it out that I'd go and pick up Robert after school, and then go over, and he and I would stop by and see the baby. So we came by to see the baby, and uh, I said, "Robert, there's a new life in our family, and it happened at 10:30. This new life." And uh, so I went over, and and we waited because she was nursing the baby, and. So we waited quite a bit and I sat there and just looked forward to seeing the baby and then they had me scrub because I was the grandparent I could hold the baby and they said, do You want to hold the baby? And I said, Sure. So I scrubbed and uh and then went into a room and held the baby. Indescribable joy it was to hold that baby. And I talked to the mother and looked at the baby's little long fingers and just such a miracle. She'd been sonogrammed and was supposed to be a boy, and they were just positive. I have to say I had a boy's name. And there's this girl got no name yet. I suppose they would give her a girl's name, but you know whatever. So then, then I went out, and uh, the baby came by, and Robert and you know, the lady saw the baby, and I went home. And then, after thinking about it, I realized what the hell it was that had happened. And that was, if you liken feelings to being a bucket, in a bucket. Before, my feelings were so full in that bucket, old feelings. There was no room for new feelings of any consequence. So a new baby was just a little, there was a little room for it with all the anger, jealousy, envy, hatred, bitterness, remorse, pain, grief of past stuff carried around in the bucket you put the baby in there's just room for a little bit of stuff but I realized my god it's like my bucket is almost empty of past crap and here I got a bucket full of feeling for this baby because this is my I had five five children seven well now eight grandchildren and two great-grandchildren And never, even with one of the kids, did I have this kind of reaction. And you say, well, it's just coincidence. (laughs) You know, we always got a million reasons to explain away something good. I don't think so. I think I got all them old stale feelings pretty much emptied out of the bucket from this work that uh, Norwegian people do. or My wife was afraid that Norwegian people did to avoid feeling. Now there was room for this new baby. And I just couldn't get over it. And I'll tell you, that feeling was worth a million dollars to be able to greet that baby with the fullness of what was there. And looking back, I've seen. Just a, you just know, a few days before, some other feelings that were just that, where something just hit me just unbelievably strong. Oh, I know, the day before, I was feeling this intense excitement about coming here and being with you. It was just like a kid given a whole hundred new toys at Christmas. Because I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to have this chance to say these things. To an audience that really understands and really listens. Like tomorrow I'm speaking to Mother Teresa uh, over Jerry's place and uh, I'll be speaking to a re- essentially a-, a religiously oriented audience. And I'm going to have to be so careful to avoid not saying anything that would give offense because there are people who are used to thinking along certain lines and I must not offend their way of thinking and must be compassionate and yet find a way to communicate the idea that I have about Mother Teresa. And so I was so excited about being with you. So, the day before, I was so just filled with this joy of being with you, and I thought, that's, you know, kind of odd. And then the next day, I'm just overwhelmed with this joy of this girl. His granddaughter, And then the next day I'm just thinking I'm coming out here and thinking about the trip. I'm not thinking of you or I'm not thinking of the granddaughter, I'm thinking about just coming out on the trip. And it was so striking to see that, that as I've done this feeling work, it has made room for abundant, abundant life in me. And. Um, but it's just. A, it's just a striking thing because Bill talks about letting go of our, of our old ideas, all those things. I was such a smart guy. I thought I knew so much. And I just let go of all that stuff and then focus on the moment by moment living and acceptance of whatever it is that's handed me and. No matter how difficult a thing that's handed me, I have to say, I see. But no matter how great a thing that's handed me, like the fact that I knew a bunch of you were going to come and hear me talk at some difficulty to yourself, I had to avoid that being a big deal, just as some hurtful thing might be said to me to be a big deal. In both cases, I have to simply say, I see. I was telling Sing Mark, who just gave a beautiful operatic performance that stunned everybody and knocked them for a loop last night, that because I know what this program will do for our bodies as well as our minds, it will so relax his body, and and his body is the instrument, like a Stradivarius violin. It is relatively unchanging, although you subject it to certain humidity changes and things you can alter and affect the tone some. But because Mark's instrument is his body, his sobriety will mean that as the tension is flowing out of his body, his instrument will become more and more the Stradivarius it was originally created to be. So that he can sing it easily, it seems to me, twice as well as whatever he sung night before, or two nights ago that was such a stunning success. And then, Two, he'll be given the thing from this program is the humility to accept that without seeing it as some big deal. Because if you don't have the humility to go along with it, it then feeds back and hurts the voice. So that what this program gives him is an, you know the same thing is this looseness and freedom and trueness to himself that he is, and to be that God-created thing that he was. And in his case, it's particularly obvious because here is this voice that's such a true reflector of it. It's like looking at it. You look at a thermometer and it tells you how hot it is or cold it is. Okay, You listen to Mark's voice and you tell what his recovery is by how much of Mark's true voice you're hearing. And those who knew him as his agent did earlier before recovery and then now sees or hears his voice after recovery could say, My God, what's happened to you? Okay, that's just a year of recovery. What, what's there ahead? So that's such a visible, you see, demonstration of what all of us are offered. It just isn't as obvious as a as a singing voice like that. See, so those are the things that that happened to us on this essay bus to sainthood. Now we didn't come in here to get those things. We came in here to get rid of our filthy, rotten habit that was killing us. But then we start getting, as we dedicate ourselves to this spiritual program, and Mark has done a beautiful job of of giving himself to this simple program, because he can call and whine, and I'll laugh at him, and he'll be laughing with me, and it's beautiful. In thirty seconds, you know, <laughs> he comes through, turns loose, just bang, just like that, and it's so lovely to see, you know. And Jim is, is the same way. He's he's turned loose, and you know, Mark back there preaching, Mark, he's he just. I ask him, I say, "You have got to be insane, you idiot! Why in the hell do you call me?" And and I constantly tell you these tough things that are way the hell beyond a person with your length of sobriety. They're like the kind of things I'd have trouble telling somebody ten years sober, and you keep calling me greedily, looking for more. What is wrong with you? You lost your mind. And he keeps telling me he hasn't lost his mind. He intends to keep calling me. You know, here's you know here Jerry the great one calls me and. And hopes for something great, and sometimes he gets something decent at least. But you know, he just keeps hanging in there. And and Dave, you know, and Kit, I call them, and they call me, and we get just such lovely stuff that's coming to each other. Those are the particularly the ones that I'm in the closest association with. The rest of you have played a part in my life in differing ways. So, here I came in wanting to get rid of a terrible perversion. And God showered me with with release and relief. Not from the opportunity to say no to lust, but gave me the willingness to say no to lust. And then, he heaps on this other blessing. And it's like Father Martin says about gratitude. Because I've always been grateful, at least said I was, and Father Martin says about gratitude in his famous, one of his famous lectures, he says, Ingratitude, he said, is the halitosis of the soul. Gratitude is the silver platter we hold out to God in which God heaps more gifts. So thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. My wife's pounding on me and telling me I'm a village idiot. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I am trouble putting it down. Take it away, God. God help me. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And at a t- there was a time here a while back when I was looking at this thing. And I was thought, how in the hell come? Because I, as I say, I'm such an extremist and such an absolutist. Okay, have I taken this thing right to the point of idiocy and is it my own weakness? Show on and and as I examined that question, and I just thought about it well, quite a while, about a year. But just recently I've come to see that I at least have no answer. I have no alternative rather than what I the position I'm at. And I guess what I would say is uh, what came to me just as I was about to say that is the line, half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Or it's like in our solution, each new step felt it would be off the edge into oblivion. But we stead it, we, we took it. And instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession. We had stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. The fellowship gave us monitoring and support, a safe haven, where we could finally face ourselves. There isn't any other answer for me than this one, and the way I've described it to you. And thank God, because if there would have been another answer and I would have stood short, I wouldn't have seen this thing I see. So, a program that my wife was concerned about was the non-feeling program of a Norwegian attempting to control troubling emotions. Turns out to be something vastly different than that. It turns out to be a, a program of more emotion, vast emotion. But it is the emotion that is appropriate to that time and then not carried over. I saw an example of a great spiritual man who was teaching students as similar to this thing where, uh, that I'm doing here for a week. And he held uh, almost a well, a radical thing of, of them totally turning loose all their delusions. And so they were, I don't know how the outcome of that was for each individual person, but they, they were saying goodbye to him after this week. He was a man from a foreign country, so they didn't have language. But he was waving out his car window and the person was driving him away and he's just waving at these people that are, there's 15 people standing there saying goodbye to him and he's waving at him and waving at him. And fortunately, the cameraman was a person open to uh, new things as they come. Glenn has shown me a lot of that in the work I've done with him on these tapes. But that man kept waving. And the car, the, it was in a place over in Washington State and it was a long tree-lined driveway through the forest, out of there about 300 yards before the turn right onto the main road, and here's this car just fading in the distance. Here's this hand waving out the window, so that the last that people those people saw of him was his arm out the window waving to him. And I thought, what in the world is that about? And then I started to think about it, and I understood what it's about is his deep feeling for them, and the relationship they had was reflected in his gesture, but because he was empty of previous feeling, he could feel all of that and reflect it all back and not break it off prematurely as we do, where we get stuffed up with feeling and we got to break it off. We can't, enough intimacy, I can't handle anymore already, you know, enough closeness. Quit loving me. You know, he could take it all and reflect it, and and show it all that he had. And he went out of sight. And then he didn't just immediately move his hand and okay and then turn to talk to the next person. I'm sure that what happened is there was a quiet time there, where his hand comes in the car and he rolls down the window, and there is a quiet. And somewhere then. Somebody said something that was appropriate to that moment of driving down that road. And what I'm seeing about that way of life is that my feeling can be totally appropriate to what is there, but it's like the feeling I had with my granddaughter. Here's this overwhelming feeling, which I'll never forget. But it's, and I, it's like a, the bucket got empty, and then I was ready for the feeling of today. Because I haven't sat here thinking about her today. And last night when the four of us, or five of us, were sitting around talking, my feeling was of us sitting around talking. And I was there instead of someplace else. I remember one time uh, my daughter uh, came up to me, I was sitting in a chair and Staring off into space, and she waved her hand in front of my eyes, and she said, Dad, are you in there? And, of course, the answer was, no, I wasn't. That's why she was waving her hand. A tremendously beautiful story along this line is a a woman that uh, had come to my classes uh, to be prepared as a teacher. I taught teachers how to teach. Uh, came back afterwards and told me a story. And she was an adult, and you know how third grade, you know, little third grade girls love their teacher, especially if she's a good one. And she had two of these third grade girls at lunchtime, noon, out in the yard, out in the grass, sitting beside her eating their lunch. And she saw two other kids over under a tree eating their lunch. And she called out to them, Sarah and Janie, why don't you come over and eat with us? You know, like a teacher does, manipulating and <laughs> kind of controlling things. And one of the girls beside her piped up and said, Mrs. Feltz, she said, we're here with you. You know, I saw such an example of that in my early uh, sexaholic career. There was a, I was in a ski club at the University of Minnesota and we were one of the big dances. And I was a big wheel on the campus and all that kind of stuff. And I always thought I was ugly because my eyes were so pop-eyed and I tried to look sinister and mysterious practice in the mirror, so I go down the roller rink and, and skate around, and people would look at him and wonder what he's been up to, you know. Fourth grade, sixth fifth grade, farm kid, you know, in Minnesota. But anyway, I was uh, I was dancing with this gal at this party the ski club had, and here was a gal there. She was a, a model, and she was the most gorgeous gal in the University of Minnesota, which is like 25,000 people and here she was dancing with the guy and she's making eyes at me and it just made me sick you know that's the kind of stuff we did all the time you know we're with we're not with somebody while we're thinking of not being with somebody else <laughs> and uh now when i'm with you i'm pretty much there most of the time as well as i can be despite moments of slips and absences. So that's this paradise. (laughs) The Bob Dylan line came to my mind. Don't go mistaken, paradise for that house along the road. Four and twenty windows and a woman's face in every one. (laughs) He must have been one of our boys. (laughs) And, uh, but that was it for us. That's where paradise was, but uh, I got a different kind of paradise now. And I don't regret the past and I wish to shut the door on it most of the time as I'm happy for the circumstances that I had that brought me here. I don't regret the consequences for myself or other people. That was part of the great escapade. I don't believe people can be hurt. Or other harm. They can be hurt, but they can't be harmed. Because to me, the luminescent spirit part of us, of each of us, is like a diamond. And we had to go through these precious experiences that we had to prepare us for this. Robin Williams says it so beautifully. He used to be angry at his parents and mad at all the things they didn't give him. And then he realized that his comic genius had come to him as a way of coping and dealing and his answer to what had happened to him. So he was on this television interview blessing his parents for the help they had been to his development as a person in his career. So that's triumph over adversity as opposed to victimhood. A lot of people want to walk the victim path today. I'm being victimized, poor baby. And it's it's a delicious thing. It's like eating a lot of fud. It's really delicious. The other thing is, it's got a kick to it. The same kick to it that eating too much fudge it's got. Remember the time my mother made those cookies out of Rice Krispies. You put that frosting, chocolate frosting on top and make them in a big cookie sheet. I ate the whole batch. I was so damn sick of those things. It was so many years before I could even look at <laughs> eye again. So, yeah, that stuff, just like our stuff, seemed to taste pretty good at the time, but it left such a terrible, terrible aftertaste. Uh, You know what, troops? I got the job done, and I thank you all for the beautiful help you give me. I'm going to have some questions for somebody, but I want to, before that comes, I wanted to say how how much I appreciate what you've done for me. Because you've given me the chance to search my heart in the furthest nook and cranny. To see what it is that's there. And only your eyes and your loving faces could have drawn out of me what has been drawn out of me here today. I came in here tired and exhausted in body, but I asked God to guide me and help me, and you've helped me. And I'm just so thrilled at what has happened here and what has been produced. and. My responsibility to this fellowship is to pass on what was passed on to me, and I remember all those telephone calls between the different towns, and that's why the conferences got or, got organized, because the Simi valley thing wasn't uh, a real conference. Conferences, I understood it, because it was no fellowship and all business meetings. And to me, anybody who can live on a diet like that is an ultimate masochist. That's like living on stones. So the new conferences have 90 plus, 99, you know, 95 percent fellowship and participation and as little business as we can possibly get away with. So those were started because that way each of us, we were just a person or two sober in each of these different places. And we could do it that way. Now, that's also the answer on the women thing. I've got a number of women names you can call and just call me. And I'll be glad to put you in touch with women. And you can set up a women's conference call. That's needed. There's a lot of ways you can have, you know, women women contact. So, you know, go for it. So, I really appreciate, you, you know, the help that all you give me. And thank you so much. Uh, before they do that, Jerry, let me just see if uh, there's a couple of questions or a question or two. just just wait there. Somebody got the quick final question that they need to ask or a quick something they need to say. Okay, that's it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, you guys.
2: <clears throat> we realize we know only a little.